Section 36. The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Esmond. Castleton on Hudson, New York. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 36. The Eucharist. Chapter 4. Its Congruities The Answer The rejection of the doctrine is over-hasty, and withal based on a misconception. Catholics, for their part, have no sense of the unfitness of the Eucharistic banquet, and this, not because their sense of the fitness of things is dulled by custom, but because they realize the meaning and spirit of the Incarnation. Does not the Incarnation mean an infinite lowering of the Eternal Son of God? Does it not mean that He became an insignificant and despised member of the human family? That He was mocked, spit upon, and nailed to a gibbet to be sacrificed for our salvation? All this would have seemed repugnant to our sense of fitness if it had been broached to us before the event. And yet, it is an accomplished fact. Who then will be incredulous at hearing of further acts of condescension? Can we be altogether unprepared for other striking manifestations of love from the same source? Realize the Incarnation, and a broader horizon will open upon your view of the divine condescension. No one who has not lived from childhood in the atmosphere of Catholic thought will not at once feel at home in it. Now, among other things, we would ask any such person to remember that the Eucharistic feast is, after all, a participation in a sacrifice. The victim is our Lord Jesus Christ, for, according to Catholic doctrine, the victim of the crucifixion is again offered on our altars in an unbloody manner and the outward guise under which he is present is the species, or appearances of bread and wine, which signify the spiritual nourishment which his real presence ministers to the soul. Having once condescended to be sacrificed for us, he finds a means of renewing the sacrifice and enabling us perpetually to partake of the divine victim. This is indeed a most ineffable act of condescension, but is it not in harmony with all the other manifestations of his inventive love? Realize what he has done for us, and you will not be shocked at his doing more. The reader will doubtless welcome a passage in the same vein as these remarks of ours from a very unlooked-for source. It is from the Literature and Dogma of Matthew Arnold. The author, though not of course admitting the Catholic doctrine, has this much to say in its favor. Once admit the miracle of the atoning sacrifice, once move in this order of ideas, and what can be more natural and beautiful than imagine this miracle every day repeated, Christ offered in thousands of places, everywhere the believer enabled to enact the work of redemption and unite himself with the body whose sacrifice saves him. 
and the effect of this belief has been no more degrading than the belief itself. And he quotes the following paragraph from The Imitation of Christ. The little Catholic classic, which contains so much of the aroma of Catholic devotion. To us in our weakness thou hast given for the refreshment of mind and body thy sacred body, the devout communicant thou, my God, raisest from the depth of his own dejection to the hope of thy protection, and with a hitherto unknown grace renewest him and enlightenest him within, so that they, who at first, before this communion, had felt themselves distressed and affectionless, after the refreshment of this meat and drink from heaven, find themselves changed to a new and better man. For this most high and worthy sacrament is the saving health of soul and body, the medicine of all spiritual languor. By it my vices are cured, my passions bridled, temptations are conquered or diminished, a larger grace is infused, the beginnings of virtue are made to grow, faith is confirmed, hope strengthened, and charity takes fire and dilates into flame. The author of Literature and Dogma has opened a fountain source of right and profitable thinking for persons without the pale of the church when he suggests that they move in this order of ideas, that they get into the orbit of Catholic thought and do not consider things apart from their general Catholic environment. The same suggestion has a bearing on another phase of the aversion felt for the Catholic doctrine. One is repelled, we are told, by the thought of the real presence in the case of hosts reserved in the tabernacle, carried in procession or conveyed to the sick, the possibility, or more than possibility, of accidents, indignities offered, and the like is especially shocking. In the first place, it is not known, or is certainly not realized outside the Catholic Church, that the most exquisite care is both prescribed and actually taken to prevent any accident, and still more, any indignity from befalling the consecrated host. And we would ask our critics to remember that one of the chief reasons, though not the only one, why the Catholic Church does not administer the Eucharist under the species of wine to the laity is that to do so would be to expose the sacred species to the danger of accident. See, communion under one kind. But even supposing the worst, supposing both accident and indignity, at least occasionally, we must again ask our friendly critics to consider the part in connection with the whole. If, as they conceive, our Lord should fare so ill in the Blessed Sacrament, would not such experience of evil be but part and parcel of all he foreknew he would suffer in his earthly abode? During his mortal life, was he not the object of indignities such as no other human being has endured, to say that he was struck upon the face, spit upon, clothed with mock insignity of royalty, nailed to an infamous gibbet between two notorious villains, or to say that his precious blood mingled with the dust which was trodden upon by his ruthless executioners, is to give a very inadequate description of this phase of our Lord's passion, 
because although we can know or imagine what was done to him by his enemies, we can never realize a thousandth part of what was felt by himself. Now, when we consider that all this obloquy was voluntarily accepted and ardently embraced before the event, that it was, in a sense, prearranged by the eternal Son of God himself, can we be surprised that at the close of his earthly career he should have chosen to remain on earth and live a sacramental life which would unite him most intimately with his children, even though it involved the risk of occasional accident or indignity? As a matter of fact, such untoward happenings are rare, but whether he endures much or little at the hands of men, he has thrown in his lot with ours, and even now, as in his passion, he can, in a manner, bid us suffer in imitation of himself. We say, in a manner, because it must be remembered that his body and his soul are in a glorified state and are consequently rendered impassable, which means that he is incapable of enduring either physical suffering or mental anguish. Hence, whatever accidents may befall the sacred species, they cannot produce any physical effect upon his sacred body, and whatever irreverence he may experience, his soul is unaffected by it. Now, no less than during his mortal life, he mingles with his own creation, and yet it is little affected by his evil surroundings as the rays of the sun are affected by mingling with the mire. He is offended, of course, as his heavenly Father is offended by any culpable irreverence shown his sacramental presence, but he is in a state which renders him superior in every sense of the phrase to the accidents that may happen to the sacramental species. A few additional observations on the manner in which our Lord is present under the sacred species may be profitable to those who are repelled from the doctrine of the Eucharist by false conception of what is implied in it. The material substance of our Lord's body is really and substantially present, but its sacramental state is analogous in some respects to the condition of purely spiritual substances. It is not circumscribed by the dimensions of the host, nor is one part of his body in one part of the host and another in another. It is at once in the entire host and whole and entire in every part of the host, just as a man's soul in its entirety is in every part of his body. This state of existence may be described as really corporeal, but virtually spiritual. It is really corporeal because what is present is the real material body of the Lord. It is virtually spiritual because enjoying miraculously the prerogative of spiritual natures in relation to space and in the absence of resistance and impenetrability. It must be noted, too, that the accidents or species are not accidents inhering in the body of our Lord. They are the veil concealing his presence from the senses. Hence, the act of eating has no physical effect upon his sacred body, such as is produced upon ordinary food. Hence, the absence of all that grossness or carnality which doubtless haunts the imagination of the unbeliever in the real presence. The Eucharistic feast 
contains the minimum of anything suggestive of ordinary eating and drinking, and such is the spirit in which it is approached that the effect it produces oftentimes rises to the maximum of spiritual fervor. Many saintly souls, by partaking of this heavenly food, have risen to an all but angelic degree of union and love. Once more, then, view the part in connection with the whole. View the blessed Eucharist, but as an extension of the incarnate life of the Son of God on earth. And yet, not even the incarnation, with all its train of supernatural favors, is comprehensive enough to cover the entire range of God's designs in regard to the union of the divine nature with our souls. When our hopes are realized beyond the stars, we shall possess him even more intimately than we do in the sacrament of his love. Then shall we be made one with him, as perfectly as it is possible for a creature to be made one with his creator. How touching, then, is the device by which he gives us a foretaste of that union at the Eucharistic table. Once move in this order of ideas, and the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist will not be repugnant to any just sense of the fitness of things. End of section 36. The Eucharist. Its Congruities. Recording by Paul Esmond. Castleton on Hudson, New York.